Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I need something wrong. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled the head of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first. Uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, it's not Bonnie, that's for sure. It's Barney. Barney. Yeah, I know. Apparently some people think your name is Bonnie Bloke. Bonnie Bloke? Bonnie Bloke. Oh, I am a Bonnie Bloke. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's a very beautiful man. Well, I'm going to talk about elderly gent Alan Henry, who, after his wife passed, enlists the help of a carer, which tragically led to his brutal murder. Mm, That doesn't sound like she was doing her job well. How about you, Tara? Well, interestingly enough, I'm talking about an elderly man who meets his demise, too. Ooh. Yeah. um, This week, I looked into the grisly 1968 murder of silent movie legend Ramon Navarro in his Hollywood home. Ooh. Yeah. Intriguing. I know. Salacious. Not not good for the old guys, this one, huh? No, it certainly isn't. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous and damn right amazing patrons. Now, you know, Tara, we have some patrons that haven't sent us their details, so we can't send them stuff. Maybe they don't want your DNA on some badges and stickers. Well, that's fair enough. But if you are wondering where your stickers and badges are... We can't email them to you. No, you need to send us a postal address. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Now, I could say, okay, let's get murdery, or I could say, so what's the word, Big Bird? Your choice. Well, why don't you say, so what's the word, Big Bird? Why don't we get murdery? What's the word, Big Bird? Why don't we get murdery? Hey! Hey! Sit on it, Barney. Ramon Navarro was born Jose Ramon Gil Samanigo on February 6, 1899 in Durango City, Mexico. His father was a doctor from a very prominent and well-respected family. In 1913, they moved to Los Angeles to escape the nasty Mexican Revolution. It was nasty. Well, it wasn't nice, was it? Yeah. The talented and handsome young man started his career playing bit parts in silent films in 1917 and also worked as a singing waiter to help make ends meet. Would you like your steak rare or would you like it well done? Ah, so you've done some work as a singing waiter too. No, not at all. (laughs) But you sound so professional. I know. (laughs) It's your cross to bear, isn't it? Pro Barney. At the recommendation of his Hollywood friends, he changed his last name to Navarro, marketed himself as a great Latin lover, and started landing more substantial parts. His breakout role was in the 1923 movie Scaramouche. Can you do the Fandango? No, I can't, and I'm a little bit offended that you would even ask me that. 
1925, Navarro achieved massive success playing the title role in Ben-Hur. So that's the silent movie version. Mm. His skimpy costumes caused many ladies to swoon and pulses to race, which launched him into Hollywood heartthrob territory. The Hollywood publicity machine had some work to do when it came to Navarro. Not only was he five foot six inches tall, (coughs) Tom Cruise, but he was also homosexual. (coughs) Tom Cruise. They claimed he was five foot ten in all their press releases and also orchestrated several pretend relationships with starlets for him. Obviously, he had to keep his real sexual proclivities a heavily guarded secret. Not only is it a shame that this used to happen back then, but it's a shame that it still has to happen now for some people. Well, some people have insist that hot celebrities should be single. <laughs> and others insist that if you're going to play a romantic lead with a woman in the, you know, other role, you know, no one would believe you if you're homosexual, which yeah. is crap. But I don't know. Some people are pretty dumb, I guess. Hmm. They're actors. They're acting. Yeah, they're acting. Yeah, they're not actually rocket scientists or yeah. anything either. James Bond, not a real spy. No. Yeah. Neil Patrick Harris, not a real doctor. Neil Patrick Harris, not a real Barney womanizer. No, no. Yeah. Well, you know that that role was actually based on you, though, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm. After Rudolph Valentino's death in 1926, Navarro became the Silver Screen's leading Latin actor. He grew to be considered one of the most successful romantic leads of his day, playing opposite Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo. None of those are very sexy names, are they? Yeah, I guess they were in those days. No, I mean, they're, they're very attractive women, but their names, like, you know, Garbo, and Joan. Joan, Norma. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't think that the names really stand up, like, yeah. say, Marilyn Monroe. Like, or that's kind of a sexy name. Morag. <laughs> Morag Fitzpatrick. Yeah. That's a sexy name. Chlamydia Smith. Chlamydia. <laughs> Is that Maggie Smith's real name? Uh, I think so. Dame Chlamydia Smith. At the peak of his career, he was earning more than $100,000 per film, which allowed him to invest in many fancy properties, one of which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, that is fancy. Yeah, very. After MGM decided not to renew his contract in 1935, his career took a dive. He tried his hand at Broadway, but it didn't work out, and he was eventually reduced to the occasional guest spot in TV shows like Bonanza. Ah, with Lorne Green and... Michael Landon. Michael Landon. See, if either of us were on that show, we'd think it was the pinnacle of success. Well, that's right. (laughs) It's all a matter of perspective, Uh, really, isn't it? The only way is down from here. Yeah. (laughs) Navarro was a Roman Catholic and a homosexual, which created a lot of internal conflict for him and may have contributed to him becoming a raging alcoholic. Although back in the day, hard liquor and cigarettes were virtually considered a health tonic, so maybe he was just a product of his times. They're not a health tonic? They're certainly not considered a health tonic. Have you read packets of cigarettes in this country? They give you the health warnings. They, like, tell you how you're yeah. going to die They've from them. they got pictures of dead people on them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you smoke them anyway. Yeah, and pregnant ladies not being able to drink anymore. That's outrageous. They have those... Oh, right, yeah. I mean, doctors used to just limit you to one bottle of wine a night when you were pregnant back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And look how everyone turned out. In 1968, Navarro had advanced emphysema and arthritis. He'd lost his licence several times for driving under the influence and lived a reclusive, lonely, Norma Desmond-type existence. Like you. Like me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready for my close-up. Uh, what is it? I'm still big. It's the pictures that got small. That's right. <laughs> God, I love her so much. I can see anything I want to see with my eyes. Actually, that was like him because he was a silent movie star. And then when the talkies came along, his mm. career kind of did get ruined. I loved how Sunset Boulevard opens with a funeral for a chimpanzee. Yep. And it just keeps getting better from there. It you really think it's does. peaked, but it hasn't. Yeah. It's one of the best movies ever. Did you know they did it on Broadway with Glenn Close? Really? Yeah, can you imagine? In order to meet young men, he frequently used an escort service, having his secretary, Edward Webber, pay them in checks written out for gardening services. Mm. Well, I suppose there was some trimming of hedges that may have been involved at, at some times. Uphill gardening, I think is what you call it. 
Edward Webber last saw Navarro alive at his home on Laurel Canyon Boulevard on Halloween Eve. Uh, that was November 30th, 1968, when he dropped off two cartons of cigarettes for him. What brand? Um, I believe they were Marlboro's and also Winston's. Oh, that's some nice research there. Yeah. Mm. Navarro opened the door in a red and blue striped silk dressing gown and smelled of lotion. He had put the lotion on his skin. Wow. Weber noticed that he had a freshly trimmed moustache and goatee and had a feeling that he was entertaining guests. After all, Navarro didn't smoke anymore. Uh-huh. The following day, Halloween, Weber showed up for work as usual at 8.30am. The house was in a state of disarray with booze bottles scattered everywhere and overturned furniture. Weber proceeded to search the house looking for his employer. The bedroom was pitch dark, but when he drew the heavy curtains back and the light shone in, he could see Navarro naked, lying on his back on the bed, his face severely beaten and his neck scratched up. He was dead. Oh. Scrolled on the mirror with a brown makeup pencil was, Us girls are better than faggots. That's uh, F-A-G-I-T-S. And the name Larry was written in ink on the bed sheet next to Navarro's body. Weird, right? Hmm. Clues. Yeah, actually more to try and throw the police off the scent. Ah, false clues. False clues, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the best kind. Red herrings. Weber phoned the police and within minutes, investigators, reporters and, of course, rubberneckers arrived. A photographer stumbled upon a pile of bloody clothes in a bed of ivy on the other side of a formidable iron fence. There was no sign of forced entry into the property. The final autopsy report revealed that Navarro's blood alcohol level was 0.23. Quite a night. Yeah, or maybe that was normal. Mm, that's probably a Wednesday. Yeah, exactly. It's a, quite a Monday night. Mm. His hands and ankles were tied behind his back with brown electrical cord. He had a broken nose and there was bruising on his chest, arm, neck, knees and penis. The cause of death was determined to be suffocation. Navarro had choked on his own blood due to multiple traumatic injuries. Um, there were rumours that he was beaten to death with a cane, but like a lot of rumours surrounding this case, that proved to be untrue. Ah, the notorious cane from Citizen Kane is up to its old tricks again. Yeah, it is quite the murderer. The grisly crime scene led the authorities to wonder who would want to kill the generous and eccentric old film legend and why. Mmm, why? 17-year-old Tommy Ferguson arrived in Los Angeles a week prior to the murder. He'd escaped from an Illinois reform school in March where he'd been sent for violently mugging an older man. Wanting a fresh start, he'd come to stay with his 22-year-old brother Paul and his wife of three months, Mari. When Paul and Tommy were growing up, the Ferguson family moved around a lot so their father, Lucky, could find work as a steeplejack. A steeplejack, that's one who climbs tall structures in order to repair chimneys and steeples. Exactly, and there's only Mm. so many of those you need to repair before you've got to go to a new town. Mm. Paul has said of his father, he was a womaniser and he'd rather drink than buy groceries or pay rent. He was a regular piece of hillbilly shit. Sounds nice, doesn't he? Yeah, sounds great. Lucky would disappear for weeks at a time, leaving their mother Lorraine with the kids and no money. And they had like nine kids. Oh, wow. When he was 10, after being hit by his father, Paul left home and hitchhiked from uh, Florida to his grandmother's house in Chicago. Whoa. Yeah, I know, when he's 10. Whoa. That's nutty, isn't it? Lucky died of spinal meningitis when Paul was 12. When he was 14, Paul left home for good and hitchhiked to Mexico this time. Okay. And then to Wyoming to work as a rancher. Ooh. Can you imagine Dex hitchhiking to Mexico? No. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't advise it, little buddy. When he was 15, he lied about his age and joined the army. I'm nine. (laughs) Okay, I think he lied in the other direction. He was honourably discharged a year later. 17-year-old Tommy had been in and out of juvenile detention centres and mental institutions since he hit double figures and had run away from home for good at the age of 15. Paul recalls that despite his behavioural issues, Tommy was always a very intelligent kid. He said, He was real smart, probably smarter than me, but it was like he devoted that intelligence to fucking shit up. (laughs) I like this kid. (laughs) Yeah. He continued, sometimes being so smart makes you dumber than shit. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? (laughs) I just think that's so interesting. 
At six foot four, lanky Tommy was taller than Paul, who was a few inches shorter with a more muscular build. But having Tommy around made Paul's wife, Mari, very nervous. It wasn't long before Mari told Paul that she didn't want Tommy staying with them anymore. This was Paul's third marriage. I mean, he was 22 after all. Well, he joined the army at nine. Yeah. <laughs> when he was 16, he married a 42-year-old woman. Yeah. It was annulled nine months later. Annulled? For what reason? Uh, Pedophilia? Was it not consummated? I hope it wasn't. (laughs) Maybe the woman realised he wasn't nine. (laughs) At 19, he married again, but it ended in divorce. And Paul had met Mari through her brother, Larry Ortega, who was a sex worker. Yeah, it's a good recommendation, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess he's like, if my sister marries another sex worker, you know, we're keeping it in the family. Yeah. As the oldest child, Paul hustled to contribute to the household. He said, I was selling myself to feed my family. When I was 10 years old, I would sell myself to the local pervert to get meat, beans and bread to take home. So that's some intense child sexual abuse being used as currency right there. Yeah, it really is. Oh, well, you've got to make do. Yeah. Paul didn't like to consider what he'd done since moving to LA as hustling. He said, I was a house guest. There's a difference. Not much, but there's a difference. It's better to be a house guest, I think. Um, As opposed to standing on the side of the road. Street corner, in your short jorts, (laughs) trying to wave down uh, all the passers-by. All my jorts are short. Uh, Who wears short jorts? I do. I know what do. (laughs) He said, I had relationships on that level. Although he had sex with these men, Paul insists that it was more of an afterthought and that he had real friendships with his clients. To put food on the table, Paul also posed for nude pics and appeared in some porn films. Neat. Neat? <laughs> so I didn't know what to say. Just before Tommy's arrival, Paul had been laid off from his contracting job and he and Murray were broke as fuck. On November 29th, Mari and Paul got into a heated argument over a can of condensed milk and she left him. Mm, That'll do it. Yep. Tommy told Paul that he sometimes hustled and was gay for pay too. Wanting his wife back and his brother out of the apartment, Paul made some calls to try to get Tommy a gig as a house guest. Paul was given former film star Ramon Navarro's number by an acquaintance and he called and talked to him about Tommy. 79-year-old Navarro invited both Ferguson brothers to come to his house. Mm, that's a bit of a mistake, I'm, I'm figuring. Why would you say that? <laughs> Tommy would later testify, Paul said we were going to meet a homosexual for some drinks and one of us would have to go to bed with him. So it sounds like they knew what they were in for. Yeah. And it's also something that they'd been doing for a long time. Business. Yeah, that's right. It's business. At 4.30pm the next afternoon, the brothers rocked up at Navarro's pad. As Navarro regaled the boys with tales of the movie star life, Paul drank vodka while Tommy drank beer and tequila from the well-stocked bar. Always down for a parlour trick or two, Navarro read Paul's palm and told him he had a long lifeline. He served the boys chicken and ordered cigarettes for them. In an effort to flatter him, Navarro told Paul that he had Hollywood leading man qualities. He said I could be a young Burt Lancaster, a superstar, another Clint Eastwood. Paul would later testify. Navarro went so far as to phone his friend, a press agent, and try to organise a meeting. But that would be the last time anyone would hear from Ramon Navarro. After the murder, the police started questioning male sex workers. Rounded up the usual suspects? Yep, and Paul's name came up in some interviews. They took particular interest in Paul's brother-in-law, Larry Ortega, due to the Larry written next to the body, but he had an airtight alibi. Uh Uh-huh. Navarro's phone logs provided some much-needed evidence. Police traced a 48-minute call to 19-year-old Brenda Lee Metcalf in Chicago, which was made at 8.21pm on October 30th. When Chicago police interviewed her, she told them that she'd been speaking to her boyfriend, Tommy Ferguson. Uh Uh-huh. 
In a statement to Chicago Police, Metcalf said, He told me that he and his brother were invited to this movie star's house. Then he told me he was working and trying to save enough money so he could send me about $300 so I could come down there and get married. I don't know how he got on the subject, but Tom told me that his brother knew there was $5,000 behind one of the pictures in the house and that they were going to try and find it. Now, the $5,000 in Metcalf's statement wasn't mentioned in her first interview with police weeks earlier. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Also, no fingerprints from the Fergusons were found on any picture frames on the walls. And I don't think those two were really, like, thorough at rubbing off fingerprints or anything. No, it doesn't mm. sound like it. No, they're pretty disorganised and, well, drunk. Metcalf's statement continued. She said, Tom said his brother was upstairs with Ramon and he was trying to find out where the money was. Then I heard a little bit of yelling and Tom said, I have to go before my brother really hurts Ramon and I want to find out what's going on. And that was the end and he hung up. So look, it's not really clear whether or not what she's saying is true or if she was maybe like it was suggested to her that she should include these details. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. She's been coached. Might have been coached like poor little Brendan from Making a Murderer. Mm. She just wanted to watch WrestleMania. Did she? Yeah. No, I don't know. The Ferguson brothers both had records in Chicago. Tommy had a long juvenile rap sheet and Paul had done time for taking a rented car across state lines. Los Angeles police determined that their fingerprints matched samples taken at the scene. And on November 6, detectives arrested the brothers. During his interrogation, Paul initially denied having anything to do with the murder. Later, he said that he passed out, and when he woke up, Navarro was dead. Tommy said during his interrogation that after the phone call with Brenda, he went to the bedroom where Paul had gone with Ramon. Tommy said Ramon was all hit in the face and all that stuff, you know, and the back of his head was bleeding, and then I took him into the shower, you know, to, like, wash it off. Because everyone knows washing blood off gets rid of the wound that it comes from, right? Mm, no. No. It doesn't work like that. No. It's not a whiteboard. Well, no, if only. Well, Tommy's the one who's so smart that he's actually dumb as shit. Yeah. Yeah. The juvenile court ruled that Tommy be tried as an adult. The brothers were charged with murder and tried together, although they had different lawyers. Along with the Ferguson brothers, Ramon Navarro's life was put on trial as well. Navarro was to be doubly violated, first by the murder and then by the trial that exposed every intimate detail of his hidden sexuality. It was common at the time for violence against homosexuals to go unreported. All a perpetrator had to do was say that his victim had made a sexual move on him and he would almost certainly be guaranteed an acquittal, which kind of still happens now too. Oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, it really is. The trial began on July 28th. The prosecution was asking for the death penalty, as it would be a felony murder if a death occurred in the course of a robbery. But there was no charge of robbery. Because the only thing that they had taken from the house was a shirt to replace Paul's bloodied one that he'd used to mop up the crime scene. What? It was, um, it was Ramon's shirt? Um, yeah. He'd, well, it was a shirt that he found at... At Ramon's place. Well, I guess it's still rubber if you want to be technical. Yeah, but I don't think they can say like, oh, yeah, they killed him when just, they were trying to steal a shirt. Just so they could steal a shirt. Yes, yeah. that they only needed after they killed him. Yeah, no, <laughs> like it, it doesn't, doesn't work. Does really it? add up, no, does it? No. Paul and Tommy's mother, Lorraine Smith, ended up taking the stand. She clearly liked to play favourites as her testimony put the blame completely on 17-year-old Tommy. She testified that Tommy wrote and told her that Navarro deserved to be killed as he was nothing but an old faggot, but she could not produce the letter. So, like, really, Mum? Yeah, nice lady. Also, like, he would have, you know, if he actually wrote that, it would have been after he was arrested. It's not like she'd throw it out. You know, especially since she wants the world to think he did it. Because get this, um, she also spoke to the Los Angeles Times, telling them that Tommy had been in a mental institution twice and had been in and out of juvie hall since he was 13. But Paul had never done anything wrong. Uh, She said she believed Tommy was capable of violence and was deathly afraid of him. Gee, thanks, Mom. 
It actually seems more likely to me that it was Paul who did it because otherwise, like, why would Tommy be on the phone to his girlfriend for, like, 50 minutes? Yeah. It seems like whatever kind of – it seems like maybe Navarro preferred him. Or he lost a coin toss. Yeah, you know, like, it seemed like that's what was what was going to work out. He was alone with Navarro and Tommy was away just chatting to his girlfriend. So, mm. I mean, that's how it seems to me, but it is open to interpretation. During his closing argument on September 15th, 1969, the prosecutor did not mince words. He waved crime scene photos at the jury and said, What kind of monsters would do a thing like this? These two male whores are experienced. They've lived on the streets for years. Why all of these serious injuries if not to get him to tell where the money was? Neither of the Ferguson brothers will admit striking Mr Navarro even once. I was beginning to wonder if what we were dealing with was a suicide. Perhaps Mr Navarro wrapped himself in that electrical cord and beat himself to death. I love sarcastic I prosecutors. <laughs> yeah, 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 they're pretty good, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Paul's attorney maintained that his client had been asleep during the murder and that it was committed by Tommy. But he also took the time to gay shame Navarro, saying some unbelievable shit. Okay, like you're not going to believe this happened in court. Okay. Back in the days of Valentino, this man who said female hearts are flutter was nothing but a queer. There's no way of calculating how many felonies this man committed over the years. What would have happened that night if Paul had not gotten drunk on Navarro's booze at Navarro's urging and at Navarro's behest? Would this have happened if Navarro had not been a seducer of young men? Oh, <laughs> slut Jamie. Uh, yeah, way to victim blame. I know. Can you believe they're allowed uh. to say this shit? Fucking hell. Tommy's attorney wasn't so heinous. He accused Paul and his mother of conspiring to focus the blame on Tommy so that Paul could avoid the gas chamber. The jury deliberated for two days before finding the Ferguson brothers guilty of first-degree murder. The brothers were sentenced to life to be served at San Quentin. Well, a life sentence, that sounds fair enough. That sounds quite quite a suitable sentence, I think, yeah, Tara. Yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? The brothers were paroled after serving seven years. What? So it's more like the life of an insect. That's a long... That flies can only live for four days, can't they? I don't uh, know. I, I don't know. They'd probably call it 40 years. <laughs> but anyway, the brothers never spoke to each other again. Hmm. Tommy married his prison psychiatrist, who was a woman in her 50s, who must have had some issues of her own. Their marriage didn't last. He had a daughter with his second wife, but that marriage didn't last either. He also liked to get drunk and call his mum to make death threats, but he never actually tried to follow through. You kind of can't blame him with all that shit oh, she yeah. said about Hello, him. Hello, mum. You suck. You suck. I'm going to kill you. Fuck you. <laughs> bah. <laughs> In January 1987, Tommy was sentenced to eight years in prison for raping a 54-year-old woman. Whoa. He was paroled in 1990. I don't know, 87, 90. That's not eight years. That's no. three years. Whoa. Come on. Revolving door prison system there in Los Angeles, will isn't you, it? Will you be a good boy now, Tommy? Yes, sir, I will. All right, off you go, you yeah. champ. Do you promise not to rape again? Oh, I do. All right, then, off you go. Off you go, you little scamp. Now. In 1991, he racked up multiple charges of petty theft, public intoxication and failure to appear in court. Tommy committed suicide on March 6, 2005. He went to a Motel 6 and cut his own throat. He did not leave a note. Oh, that's, that's sad. Yeah. What a horrible life you had, though. Yeah, it was pretty shit, wasn't it? Mm. Um, apparently, he just had really bad anxiety. He would bed wet from a very early age, way up until quite a late age. Mm. He liked to slash pillows. And sometimes when he stayed with one of his other brothers, he'd only sleep on the roof. He was yeah. quite a disturbed young man. Well, I'd like to thank him for his service, though. He spent a year in the army no, when he was that's, nine. No, that's Paul. Oh, okay. No, well, this is Tommy. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll thank him for his service, Yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, Tommy didn't do that. <clears throat> also, Paul, Paul didn't turn out to be that much of a stand-up guy either. Yeah. After his release from San Quentin, Paul married again and had a son. He worked in several different fields and had a collection of his autobiographical short stories um, published. The book has a very catchy title. Really? No. It's called No More War Stuff About God Anymore. Catchy. That, that is catchy. 
Um, so apparently he was a good writer. Paul's currently serving a sentence of 60 years for a 1989 rape and sodomy charge. He claims that the prosecutor framed him. Um, 60 years. What's that going to be? What, 20 maybe? <laughs> You'll be out in three. Yeah, yeah, based uh, on the math that we've seen. 60 years is a, a long time for a rape. And sodomy. Look, I don't know the details of it. I'm wondering if it was particularly heinous. Yeah. I'm assuming that it would have to have been. Yeah. Nasty people. Did some nasty things. Well, it's Paul. Bit, it's a bit rare for us to talk about, talk about nasty people doing nasty. <laughs> I know. Who would have thunk it? It's normally uh. such a fun podcast. Um, Paul has, however, finally confessed to killing Ramon Navarro. Well, kind of. Uh, what did he say? All right. So of that Halloween Eve back in 1968, he says, I'm drinking and listening to him talk about movies. I'm going, wow, this guy can tell some pretty good stories, but I'm getting drunk. The next thing I knew, I find myself being overwhelmed by this body and just like hairiness and I guess being kissed or whatever the fuck it was. And I come out of that, I go boom. So that's what happened. So of murder, I was innocent. Of manslaughter, I wasn't innocent. I remember standing beside this man and coming out of this heavy drunken fog and hitting him and seeing him fall on the bed. <laughs> like, okay, so that's the whole like, oh, he, he, he made a pass at me so I killed him routine. Yeah, but he was there for that. I know. He's like a seasoned young hustler. So, it, I mean, you never know what kind of psychological issues he might have too if he had actually been pimping himself out from the he age of might, 10. Yeah, like, he might have been abused too. It might have triggered him. He was very drunk. I'm not... I know. This is not the, this is not the victim's fault. No, but. no, of course not. But it's just like... um, He's just using that same excuse though, right? He yeah. goes on, by the way. Okay. Uh, so he says, I didn't do anything more than that. Mr. Navarro died because he was so drunk that the blood in his throat, the involuntary muscle in his throat didn't work because the alcohol suppressed it. If he'd turned his head, if he'd been a little more sober, he would not have died. That's the God's truth. So, yeah, apparently it was mostly Navarro's own fault for being gay and drunk. Oh, I don't buy that. Yeah. I don't think anybody would. Well, maybe if Paul hadn't bashed him in his head, he wouldn't have had blood to choke on that That's, was coming through the back of his good, nose and you, things. You make a good point, Tara. You know, you know. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of salacious hoo-ha in the media after information about Navarro's murder and sexual preferences came out at trial. Okay. The most infamous was the section in Kenneth Anger's highly inaccurate exploration of fame and debauchery, Hollywood Babylon. In the book, he says that the murder weapon used to kill Navarro was a lead dildo cast from Rudolph Valentino's penis. Yeah. He says the full metal dildo was crammed down Navarro's throat until it suffocated him to death, which is really not how it went down. But um, to this day, that, that rumour still is kind of something that a lot of people believe. Mm. That's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't the dildo. It wasn't the cane from Citizen Kane. No, And notorious. nor was it Navarro's own damn fault, you know? No, no. So, wow, what a, what a terrible end to quite an auspicious life. Yeah, that's right. I like those stories of debauched Hollywood yeah, there's yeah. something there's something, something about, fascinating about really him, isn't is. it? I'm drawn to them. Yeah, same. Mm. Good work. Oh, thank you, champ. So, Senor Knucklebutt, do you know what time it is? It's true crime nerd time. Yay! True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. A piece of spaghetti that looks like Teresa Nor. Uh, are you itchy? You can record your voice, <laughs> just do it on your phone, we'll play it or write it, we'll read it out. And we've got a cracker here from Jill Hittyhurt. The Cases That Haunt Us by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Oh, I've read this. It's great. Mm, it's mm -hmm. a book. It is a book. That's why, how come I was able to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Knucklehead. And it reads like this. 
Although the cases that are discussed in this book will be well known to many bloody murder listeners, it is still fascinating. Former FBI profiler John Douglas and his longtime co-author Mark Olshaker examined five cases. Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, the Zodiac Killer and John Bonet Ramsey and include helpful images and maps. Douglas provides a brief but thorough summary of the events in each case examines the historical theories surrounding them and provides new insight via a profiler's analysis. On the whole, the book is riveting and hard to put down, and I enjoy the author's straightforward, no-bullshit writing style. Some readers might object that Douglas could be too close to the Ramsey case to provide a completely objective analysis, since he was hired by the family as a consultant. But he does provide logical arguments to back up his analyses and conclusions in the case. This was one of the first true crime books I read, and I've reread it several times and loaned it to friends, and I've never had anyone say they didn't like it. <laughs> the last person I loaned it to took a while to read it because her significant other started reading it and wouldn't give it back. <laughs> it's a great introduction to all of those cases for those who are not familiar with them, while also providing enough new material to hold the interest of true crime diehards who've read about the cases before. The Cases That Haunt Us remain a unique look at historical and more recent true crime mysteries and is one of my absolute favourites. Well, thank you, Jill Hitty Hurt, for writing that. Yes, thank you. That was awesome. So that book is called The Cases That Haunt Us and it's by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. And True Crime Nerd Time will be back next week. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, you silky little bitch. What? <laughs> Nothing. I just wanted to call you a silky little bitch. Because I like how those words feel in my mouth. <laughs> silky little bitch. You're a silky sil- little bitch. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, Barney. I think it's time for you to get murdery. All right, then. 72-year-old Alan Henry lived alone in a house in Gregson Street, Gloucester, about 220 kilometers north of Sydney. Gloucester is located in a picturesque valley at the junction of three rivers and is known as the Gateway to the Barrington Tops. It is a charming, tiny country town with a population of only a few thousand. Sounds like a good place to retire. It does. Well, that's what Alan Henry thought. Alan Henry had been living there alone since his wife had passed in 2010. Was Alan a cantankerous old man who yelled at kids to get off his lawn? I don't think so. All my research told me is that he was a sweet old man who enjoyed a quiet beer at the pub and was loved by his family. Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. In early 2011, Alan met 35-year-old Natasha Slake. As Alan was finding it hard looking after himself, he offered her work as a part-time carer, doing chores such as shopping and house cleaning. Natasha lived at Port Stephens with her boyfriend, 41-year-old Jason Grogan. After a few months of caring for Alan, Jason began to accompany Natasha on her trips to Gloucester. The trio socialised together by going to pubs. Oh, do you think they went to an RSL and had a counter meal? I think they would have, you know, got the early bird special when you ate dinner at four o'clock. Yeah. Like old people do. Might have. Hmm. In mid-2011, Alan Henry was hospitalised for about a fortnight following eye surgery. Jason and Natasha stayed at his home to take care of his dogs. Oh, you've got dogs. He's got dogs. Probably a couple of little little sausage dogs, I think. Oh, like my lawyer. Like your lawyer. He's a sausage dog. He is. A couple of days after Alan returned home from the hospital, there was what was described as a big argument. A neighbour heard Alan tell Jason to get out and don't come back. Natasha continued to visit him, but Jason was effectively barred from entering Alan's home. Jason would drive Natasha there and pick her up later. Right. I wonder what that was about. Hmm. On January 10, Jason and Natasha travelled from Port Stephens to Gloucester for her to care for Alan. At about 4.30pm, they were at a service station about 250 metres from Alan's home. 
They were observed by a number of witnesses to be engaged in a very heated argument. The situation was so inflamed that the bystanders physically intervened out of concern that Jason might harm Natasha. Oh, shit. That sounds like a pretty big Barney. <sighs> was that a good thing or a bad thing? No, you know, a Barney. It also refers to, like, a fight. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, not a Bonnie bloke. Not a Bonnie bloke. No, it's very different. After the situation came under control, Natasha was on the phone talking to Alan Henry. She passed the phone to a police officer who had been flagged down by a motorist. The officer, Senior Constable Broadley, spoke to Alan and asked him whether he had any problems with Natasha's stated intention of going to his home. Alan replied, Yeah, that's fine. As long as her boyfriend's not with her, he's an absolute arsehole and isn't welcome here. Right. It sounds like he might have a history of, of violence towards her. Yeah, I'll get to that. Right, okay. Mm. That would, might also explain why um, why Alan thought he was an asshole. Hmm. When the police officer arrived at the scene, Jason scurried away and went directly to Alan Henry's home. Uh. He climbed over his back fence from a rear lane. He was seen by a neighbour to be bobbing up and down in an attempt to conceal his presence. But when one of Alan's neighbours asked him, what the fuck do you think you're doing? He replied he was just pissing against the... F oh, I'm just having a piss, eh? Yeah, no number twos. Right. Oh, but that was all right. Just <laughs> in someone's yard pissing is fine. And apparently satisfied with this explanation, <laughs> the neighbour then went about his business. Right. <laughs> it must happen all the time. Jason then leapt over the fence, went to the back door of Alan Henry's home and entered through the unlocked door. Now, there is no direct evidence about what occurred inside the home. A subsequent crime scene examination revealed little. What is known is that Jason must have only been inside the home for a few minutes. What we do know is that Jason took Alan's laptop computer and left via the back door. He climbed over the rear fence and fled down a laneway. Senior Constable Broadley was patrolling the area in his police car. Now, oh. this, this is the same cop that broke up the fight earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, remember, this is a small town. Right. At about 5.30pm, he noticed a man in the laneway carrying something, so he stopped, reversed, and drove into the laneway. Jason jumped over the back fence of another property, dropped the laptop, and ran off. Yeah, he's got a bit of a parkour thing going on there, Oh, huh? yeah, loves jumping fences. Wow. Hmm. Natasha arrived at Alan's home a short time later. At 5.31pm, she called triple zero. An ambulance was dispatched and arrived at 5.50pm. Paramedics found Alan Henry lying face down on the kitchen floor with his arms by his side, palms up. He was unconscious and there was a large pool of blood around his head. Alan was taken by ambulance to the local hospital where he was stabilised before being flown by air ambulance to Westmead Hospital and admitted to the intensive care unit. Wow, what a cowardly thing to do to, like, you know, beat mm. up an old guy. That's right. Towards the end of March 2012, Alan Henry was transferred to a nursing home at Arena. He died on April 19 from a complication as a result of the severe brain injury. Jason Grogan was arrested on January 17th. He was charged with a serious assault offence, but the charge was upgraded to murder on May 4th following Alan Henry's death. He was interviewed on both of those occasions. He told a number of lies, Tara, in those interviews and denied assaulting Alan Henry. Police believe the contrary. Yeah. A forensic pathologist who gave evidence in Jason's trial, Dr. Brian Beer, well, you're like Beer, mm -hmm. explained that the most probable mechanism by which Alan Henry sustained his injuries was that he received a punch or a blow to the right side of the forehead causing a contusion. This blow caused him to go down and he either hit the left side of his head on some object as he was falling or when he hit the floor. The Crown case on murder was put to the jury in two ways. One was that Jason struck Alan Henry to the right side of the forehead and that he did this with the intention to inflict grievous bodily harm. The other way was what lawyers call constructive murder. Is that like felony murder? Yeah, that's what we call it here. In short, doing an act which causes death during the commission of a very serious criminal offence, in this case, aggravated robbery with wounding. Right. It was Dr. Beer's evidence that the degree of force required to produce the type of injury Alan Henry sustained to his right forehead is difficult to gauge. Dr. Beer offered the opinion that moderate force or a decent sort of punch was involved. <laughs> decent? Yeah, that's how you measure punches. Whether they're decent yeah. or indecent. 
It sounds more indecent oh, to that me. Was a, that was a decent punch in the side oh, of the head. That was pretty decent. Yeah. Mm. Well, it killed him. Yeah. Well, it's just bad. So, Tara, Jason Grogan was not a stranger to the courts with 168 criminal charges. Jeez, that'd take you some time, wouldn't it? So, Tara, let's meet Jason Grogan. Okay. He was born in 1970. He was the youngest of four children and was brought up in the Coffs Harbour region of New South Wales. He was educated to year 10 and did a carpentry apprenticeship. Like Jesus. Hmm, exactly like Jesus. He has three children from past relationships who are 13, 14 and 18. Three children from four different mothers? Yeah, just like Jesus. Rough, right. Drug abuse has been a major feature of his life. Surprise, surprise. It all started with smoking weed at around the age of 15. It's about when I started. Oh, I didn't really mm. start till later. Well, I tried it. Yeah, and you went... No, oh, I didn't like it. This is illegal. I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. I'll never did a, it again. No, never. He tried amphetamines at about 24 and used the drug intermittently over the years. He used heroin from about that time as well and told psychologist Dr. Nielsen that it was his drug of choice. He has entered two drug rehabilitation facilities, has completed a number of courses and had undergone counselling. He had been clean for two years but relapsed in the year before bashing Alan Henry. He had not, however, consumed any alcohol or taken any drugs on the day of the assault. Jason also told Dr. Nielsen about past admissions to psychiatric facilities where he had exhibited symptoms of schizophrenia like psychosis. He denied any recent symptoms and attributed his past symptoms to drug use. I suppose that's possible. Hmm. Dr. Nielsen made the psychiatric diagnosis of substance dependence and abuse disorder and recurrent drug-induced psychosis currently in remission. He also considered the possibility of an underlying schizophrenic illness and possible traumatic brain injury. Okay. So he might have taken a blow to the head that's... Well, also, um, a lot of people who use heroin tend to kind of stop breathing for long periods of time after they've taken it. Well, lack of oxygen to, to the their brain, brain can cause it. Yeah, look, that can be something that happens. Some trauma there. Yeah. Not just blunt force trauma. It can be lack of oxygen to the yeah. brain. That can, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Good point. Now to Jason's extensive criminal record. He has been convicted of offences in New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia. Oh, do you think he was? He had a map of Australia and he was trying to tick off all the states? Yeah, maybe he was, yeah. There are many convictions for crimes of violence and crimes involving dishonesty. These crimes occurred at regular intervals from when he was 17. He had a number of good behaviour bonds at the time he murdered Alan Henry. Well, that doesn't sound right, does it? No, no, it's bad behaviour bonds. Yes. He adhered to those. He certainly did. After being found guilty of the murder of Alan Henry, a victim impact statement by Alan's daughter, Susan Henry, was read. I can only pray that my father's death can become a legacy to all citizens to be mindful of the choices they make and the consequential impact those decisions have on the lives of their fellow citizens and families. I believe this is the greatest gift we of humans can give to one another, she said. Wow, that's a very level-headed sort of approach. It's very magnanimous, isn't it? Yeah. Justice Hume said, The effect upon her, emotionally and otherwise, of losing her beloved father in such circumstances has been nothing short of profound. It is remarkable, then, that she has managed to think beyond her own intense grief to the wider ramifications to the community. Yeah, hmm. wow. Well said. Jason Grogan was sentenced to 24 years with a non-parole period of 18 years. He will be eligible for parole in 2030, which sounds fair, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose. 24 years? Yeah. Now, what of Natasha Slake? Her hands were not exactly clean in Alan Henry's death either. Oh. Natasha was charged with, and here's the name of the charge, it's a long one. Yeah. Hindering the apprehension of a person who had committed the offence of inflicting grievous bodily harm. Meaning? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> right, okay. Her court case was heard in August 2013 and she pleaded guilty. The court heard that after Ellen Henry was taken to the hospital following the assault, a neighbour heard an argument taking place in the back veranda of his home. It involved Natasha and Jason and included Jason saying, It's gone too far. You can't back out now. Ooh. The pair went inside the premises and were there until two police officers arrived at their front door at about 7pm. The officers had been alerted to the incident that had earlier occurred at the home and were making inquiries. 
As they approached the house, they heard a male and female within the premises and saw an outline of a female figure and a male figure. I see a little silhouette of some cunts. Yes, that's, that's exactly right, what okay. they saw. Mm-hmm. Jason moved quickly into the kitchen and out of view, but the officers could still hear whispering inside the house. Well, that's not clever. So, Tara, I'd like you to uh, help me out here. I want you to do the voice of Natasha. Right, okay. So, um, just take that. So, some more um, sort of stone-cold bogan? Yeah. All right. I think you can manage it. Yeah, I think that's in my repertoire. So the officers knocked on the door and Natasha answered. When the officers asked to come in, Natasha said, Hell no! You can't come in. Get a warrant. He only had a fall. When they persisted, Natasha responded, Yeah, well, I've had a bad day too. I've come all the way up here, had a fight with Jace, then to see someone with their head bashed in. Natasha's choice of words was questioned, and she replied, Oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. I meant um, someone who's fallen and bashed their head. She slammed the door in the copper's face. But Tara, one of the officers, went to the rear of the house. He noticed that the back door was wide open. Natasha rushed to the door and stopped the officer from entering, saying, You can't come in here. You don't have a warrant. When the officer told her that he needed to find out what had happened, she said, He was fucking bashed. Oh, fuck, I didn't mean to say that. He fell over and he just hit his head. The officer asked Natasha where the male person who had been in the house a short time before was. She replied, There's no one fucking here. I was here by myself. You fucking cops are all the fucking same. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't I just do that for a living, huh? Yeah, I know. (laughs) Why do I need an office job? Now, ultimately, Natasha agreed to allow the two officers to enter. It is the actions of Natasha in delaying the police entry and thereby permitting Jason time to flee the premises that is the cause of the charge to which she pleaded guilty. Okay. The officers left and made various inquiries and returned to the house later in the evening. This time they saw Natasha walking out from the front door of the house and down the street with Jason trailing behind her. The officers called out to Jason to stop but the pissy bitch ran off into the night. That sounds like something he'd do. Yeah, he probably jumped a few fences. Yeah, he probably did. Parkour! <laughs> Later in the evening, the police returned to Alan Henry's home and found Natasha once again inside. She was told that the house had been declared a crime scene and she was asked to leave. Why is she still hanging out there? That's weird. Maybe she's looking after the sausage dogs. Well, maybe she should have taken them to her house. Later that evening, she was at a hotel in Gloucester where she was observed to have one black eye. Sometime after that, ambulance officers were called as Natasha was unconscious on the veranda of the hotel. She was found to be in a drunken stupor and she was taken to hospital. Wow, okay. I bet that relationship of hers is, well, violent and complicated. Toxic, I'd Mm, say. Yeah. On January 17th, police found Natasha and Jason in the town of Taree. They were both arrested for the assault upon Alan Henry. Natasha agreed to be interviewed. She said that when she went to Alan Henry's home on the afternoon of January 10th, she had consumed about two litres of wine. When she entered, she found Alan Henry lying on the floor with a little bit of blood on him. She told the police that she thought he must have slipped while taking the rubbish out. Right, okay. That's not really how it sounded when she said to them that he had his head bashed in, is it? Yeah. She's already talked to cops and said something completely different. Yeah, and she was pissed too. Natasha was due to be tried jointly with Jason Grogan, but his counsel successfully applied for a separate trial. God, you'd think that would have been her counsel trying to do that. Mm. You don't want to go down with that ship. Okay, Tara, let's get to know Natasha. Would you like to get to know Natasha? I feel like I know her well enough to know that I don't want to know about Natasha. She also has a fairly lengthy criminal history. It comprises a considerable number of convictions for dishonesty offences. Right. She also has experienced a problem with illicit drugs... Yes, she also partakes in a wackety smackety. What? Nobody calls it wackety smackety. I do. Oh, your toolbox. <laughs> I'm a bonnie bloke. You are in a toolbox. She has also been in prison. In 2012, she was sentenced to two months imprisonment for being carried in a convenience taken without the consent of the owner. So that's probably riding in a stolen car, or it could be a velocipede. Okay, well, remember Jason had a charge for stealing a car, so I wonder if that was the same vehicle. Yeah, maybe she was inside. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. 
Her relationship with Jason Grogan was said to be characterised by violence and intimidation from him, and she was subjected to repeated physical abuse. Well, I also wondered at the fact that he'd, like, come with her to her job. Like, that's a really controlling behaviour. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. So Natasha has a history of difficulties with drugs and alcohol. She was addicted to heroin in her later teenage years but overcame that and then had an enduring problem with alcohol abuse. She returned to the use of heroin, or wackety-smackety, as you like to call it, Tara, from the time she got with Jason. Right, okay. Natasha has a 10-year-old daughter who, because of an intervention by the Department of Community Services, as a result of her alcohol problem, lives with her father. So that's sad. Well, hopefully she's got a good dad. Yeah. Natasha was given a two-year suspended sentence for her role in Alan Henry's death. I guess she's a victim too here, a little bit. Yeah. Um, It's complicated. It really is. Now, you'd think this will be the end of the story, but there's more, Tara. Oh, okay. That doesn't normally mean good things and rainbows and unicorns and and he came back to life and everyone was happy. Well, you might be surprised. Mm, Will I? No. Oh, fuck (laughs) you. No, no, no. Five years later, in April 2017, Jason Grogan had his sentence reduced by more than half after successfully appealing the murder conviction and pleading guilty to manslaughter. Ah, for fuck's sake. So you know he was going to be paroled in uh, 2030? Yeah, 2030. And that we were like, yeah, okay. He will now be eligible for parole in November 2018. Oh, okay. So kind of soon. Yeah, in a few months. Yeah, we need need guys like that back out here. We totally do. Yeah, so the New South Wales Supreme Court found Jason had reasonable prospects of rehabilitation despite his long history of serious drug taking and crime. Yeah, poster boy for rehab. Hmm. Remember Alan Henry's daughter Susan? Oh, of course I do. Yeah, she was very um eloquent and and kind of um level-headed for someone who's suffering so much grief. She was unhappy about the reduced sentence. Well, clearly she would be. I think the community needs to wake up. Susan Henry told reporters outside court, adding she was extremely disappointed. Yeah. It's time we started knocking on the doors of our local politicians and demanding tougher sentencing laws and that the existing laws be revisited. Susan Henry has created I Forgive You, which is an iOS and Android app that aims to assist people to manage, release or express their feelings in the areas of forgiveness, love, gratitude, apology and mindfulness. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's created this whole app to help her cope with her father's death. I've, I've actually downloaded it. It's, it's pretty cool. I want to see it. Yeah. This is the blurb uh, about okay. the app. Traditionally, people use journals to express their feelings or cards letters to send their thoughts to others. The key benefit of this innovation is that it is mobile and accessible 24 hours a day and is responsive to the user, providing the sense that they are being heard via inbuilt encouragement messages. Smart 100 lists Sue Henry's I Forgive You mobile app in the Smart 100 list of best apps. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's well put together as well. Hmm. Now, I found its website and it, it does look interesting, Tara. Mm-hmm. I've got to tell you, I'm fascinated and encouraged by people who can turn the negative aspects of their life into something positive. Yeah, absolutely. I found this blog entry on the app's site. Okay. And this is awesome. And there it was, a letter from the Department of Public Prosecutions with the title Notice of Intention to Appeal of the Court of Criminal Appeal by Jason Mark Rogan. My heart sank. Then I became angry and frustrated, and rightly so. I was cranky that the person who took my father's life was found guilty by 12 peers of murder, was also receiving three meals a day, education, and his basic private needs met. Now he was accessing more free legal defence to appeal a sentence and conviction. This is a man in his 40s that prior to assaulting and ultimately murdering my father had 168 criminal charges. How much more does this guy want to take from others? I was cranky. I was cranky that no one was taking care of my needs. No one was paying bills for me, providing me with three meals a day, free legal advice or education. I was cranky that I'm working to help others via my traumatic experience. I was cranky that my life had been disrupted again by him taking more. Then, what really pinned me over the edge was a realisation that I was not just cranky, I was resentful. Kapow, it was a blow. I was demonstrating behaviours that got the criminal with whom I'm cranky in jail. Resentment and anger. 
two factors of his ultimate conviction. I was doing what I'm aiming not to do. I was drinking the poison and expecting the other person to hurt. Resentment, the fuel in a long road trip to misery. I took a breath and took my own advice and wrote down my raw feelings. Then reality hit like a cool wind at my back. I am not that person. I'm fun. I'm helpful. I'm working towards a better community. I do not want to be resentful. I do not want to display the traits of a criminal. So I took action. I used my own app. I expressed my anchor. I discussed it. I owned it and controlled it. My friends know I'm not reinventing the wheel. I hope my lessons can make the journey smoother for others. I wonder how many people that read this will relate to feeling resentment like mine. Keep smiling, Susan Henry. Wow. Hmm. Okay, so what's that called? I forgive you. I forgive you. I want to have a look at that. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, good on her for turning an absolutely horrible traumatic experience into like a creative process. Yeah, and I, I think she's helping others too. Yeah, yeah, well, that's wonderful. Hmm, it really is. Now, if you'd like to know more about that I Forgive You app, I'll put some uh, details of that in the notes of this show. On our website. And on our website. Yeah, um, wow, hell of a story. Hmm, thank you. Now, uh, I've got a question for you. Hmm? What the fuck is Aussie as? <sighs> Really? Aussie has a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Will I like it? Um, well, it's got dick drawings. Ooh, I like those. <laughs> <laughs> Should I do it? Sure. So I'd like to thank the wonderful Casey Crane for bringing this one to my attention. On your Casey. Yeah. Usually when we talk about things that can be seen from space, we're referring to majestic national landmarks like the pyramids in Egypt, the Great Wall of China, the Himalayas, the Great Barrier Reef and the Amazon River. Well, now you can add a giant dick and balls drawn in the Australian countryside to that wondrous list. Ooh, I'm intrigued. The doodle of a doodle is etched into a dry lake bed in Marcus Hill just outside of Geelong in Victoria and recently appeared on Google Maps. Ooh. It has been afforded local celebrity status with plenty of Aussies jumping in to offer beers to the anonymous cock and ball artists should they make themselves known. Off the legend who did this can inbox us with any form of proof. That'd be awesome, said a Facebook user. We have a beer with your name on it. As of Friday afternoon, Google Maps showed the drawing in satellite mode, which the internet found extremely hilarious. It featured in a post on Take the Piss Geelong's Facebook page on Monday and went viral as people tagged their mates in the comments. It's been featured in international articles from all over the world and quickly became a global phenomenon. Oh, we own the property just off the lake. It was dried up for about a year, and so we went out exploring on the lake one day. The top layer was kind of like salt, and when you stood on it, it turned into mud. One of the artists, Bert Bertson Jr., not his real name, has oh, said. Oh, Bert's back. He's back. That's going to be our name for everyone with a fake name now. <laughs> right. Bert Bertson Jr. Out of this discovery, the seeds of genius were born. Eat your heart out, Sistine Chapel. Oh, I like that seed, like in sperm, because yep. it's a dick. Nah, I, that's get it. That. I get it. I get it. That's champagne comedy. You know it. Oh, we were out there for a couple of hours stamping away, he said. So that's how they did it. They did it by, like, stomping. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the drawing was about 50 metres or 164 feet long, which is the same length as an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Well, that's how you measure huge... Cocks on uh, that's dry how I measure all cocks, but I put them next to an Olympic sized swimming pool and then I figure uh, out the uh, math. But it wasn't until a month later that the pair were able to fully appreciate the majesty of their work. Oh, my uncle actually spotted it, Bertie said. He was just looking at our property in Google Maps and he saw it. But sadly, Bertie has let us know that the enchanted wiener no longer exists, so cancel that religious pilgrimage to Geelong. Oh, really? Yeah, he Damn. said the lake is now filled with water, washing out the masterpiece. Word soon got around locally about the drawing, well and truly putting the area on the map. And while Mother Nature has taken offence at the lewd dick pic and wiped it off the face of the earth, its legend lives on in Google Maps. Oh, I'm going to look it up right now. Oh, yeah, you need to see it. Dick and balls. What could be funnier? Oh, wow, that's great. Legends. Nice one, Bert Bertson Jr., so thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. And if you'd like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink, 
There's a PayPal donate button there too. And in fact, the lovely Tracy Bailey has done just that. Thanks, Tracy. Yeah, you, you hey, rock. Hey, Tracy, <laughs> you're beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I agree, but like in a less sleazy way. Oh, uh, no, it was, yeah, anyway, I'll be... <laughs> I've been the Bonnie Bow bloke Barney Black. And I've been Tata's Taliban. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you want. Follow us on Twitter and Snapshit and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and some sweet-ass merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So do you think I'm going to have a cold forever? Yeah, probably. Yeah, you think this is forever? As long as you don't whine about it forever. Oh, I might. I might whine about it now and later and whine about it again. All right, well, this isn't very funny, is it? Yeah, so how do you think that went? That's oh. a shit, wasn't it? Oh, well, yeah. You're just, I mean, you just sick of doing this podcast? I don't uh, know. You know what? I just want to read about unicorns. About unicorns? Yeah, ones that stab people to death existing. <laughs> and then we can do one just about the, all the drop bear fatalities yeah. in this country. Yeah, I hate everything. Butterflies, rainbows. They had, they had the intercom on in the and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Yeah, well, you tried to piss on a butterfly once, remember? I and did. And you ended up pissing on your own face. I did. It went in my mouth. <laughs> Serves you right. <laughs> was it delicious? It was not delicious. <laughs> I don't recommend drinking your own way. Well, no, a lot or of anybody people else's. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm not into it. No. Nah, there's water in the tap. There's wee in someone's bladder. You're not into a little bit of potty play? No, potty play. <laughs> oh, just that term. That's like worse than panties. You're into some panty potty ah! play? <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, smoke bomb. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.